So we're talking about the resurrection uh, tonight, and a, a lot of the legwork has already been done for us regarding, you know, d- does God exist, and, and, you know, is the Bible reliable? So the resurrection may not be a conversation that you're going to get into cold turkey with somebody at your schools or at your workplace or, or in your family or whatever, maybe it is, but hopefully you, you've gone over some of the other things that we've already covered in this series, and if you're not really up on that or you, you missed some of that, go back and, and watch them again. They're on our, our Third Nine website. Um, you can go on there. You can listen to them again, watch them again. Uh, if you want the notes from any of them, the, the keynotes from any of them, let me know and I'll, I'll get those to you. But we're dealing with the resurrection. And, and as we get into that, I want to ask uh, some questions about the concept of a, a car for a minute. And not, not really conceptually, but, but a, for a car to actually be a car and, and to operate as it was intended. I want to ask some questions about what's necessary. Does a car need a roof to be a car? No, it doesn't, right? Does does a car need windows to be a car? Does a car need doors to be a car? No. Jeeps drive around without doors all the time, right? Does it need air conditioning to be a car? No. Some of you guys have cars that don't have air conditioning. You're like, I know that my car still drives and it doesn't have AC. What about a stereo, a radio player, a CD player, MP3 player, whatever? Does it need that to be a car? No. How about a a trunk? Does it need a trunk to be a car? No. Floor mats. Does it need floor mats to be a car? No. In fact, I can verify that because I I walked onto a a dealership when I leased my my Corolla and I said, I want the cheapest one on the lot and one that doesn't have floor mats if you have one. And uh, they took me to one that didn't have floor mats. So a car does not need floor mats to operate. Does it need uh, headlights? Mm, uh, No. I could drive my car during the day and it's a car and I don't need headlights, right? Does it need uh, hubcaps on the wheels? No. Some of you guys are testifying to that, right? Does it need airbags? No, it doesn't. Does it need a hood? No, it doesn't need a hood. Your hood could fly off your car and it would still drive, right? It would still get you from point A to point B. Uh, how about license plates? Again, legally, yes, but a car can still function as a car. It doesn't like just shut down if you take off the license plates. Does it need side mirrors? No, I happen to know that very well. I was driving to church during college uh, and went to Grace Community Church, and if you've ever been up there, you have to park on the side streets, and uh, there's cars all over the place, and I, I got too close to one, and my side mirror clipped off and fell off my car. Um, yeah, my car still operated, and uh, it, it drove. Does it need a horn? No. Does it need bumper stickers? No. In fact, who's, whose car is it that's on campus here who has like a billion bumper stickers on it? Isaac. Isaac. Isaac, are you here? You're not here, are you? The one week I call you out publicly, and you're not here. But it doesn't need bumper stickers, although Isaac's might to, to hold together. <laughs> windshield wipers. Does a car need windshield wipers? No. Blinkers? No. Back seat? No. Does it need those sun visors? No. Does it need a windshield? No. It doesn't need any of those things. It can still operate. It can still function. But now let's ask some different questions. Does a car need a, a steering wheel in order to function as a car should function? Don't be that... that that contrarian that's like, well, technically, no, just go with me on this. Yes, you want to have a steering wheel in a car for it to function as a car. If you get pulled over by a police officer and you don't have a steering wheel, he's not going to let you drive that thing anywhere else, okay? It's, it's done. That's going to be towed. That's impounded. Does it need gasoline? If you drive a Prius, don't talk to me about plug-in electric cars or whatever. Do, do real cars yes. need gasoline? Yes, they do. They, they need gasoline and carbon footprints and all that glorious stuff. Do they need a gas pedal? What do they call it if it's a Leaf or one of the plug-in cars? Is it an electric pedal? I mean, what, is it still the gas pedal? Do, you need a gas pedal to go. You need brakes in a car. You need tires. You need an engine. These are all things that are imperative to a car functioning the way a car is supposed to function. If, if you remove any of those things, your car doesn't work the way it was intended to. And in fact, it's, it's not really a car anymore. It's just a, it's a playhouse on blocks or wheels or whatever. There are things that are imperative to the identity of a car. And just like that, there are things about being a, a Christian that are imperative to being a believer in Jesus Christ. We have to believe as Christians, like we covered last week, that Jesus is the son of God. That Jesus is fully God, fully man. You cannot compromise on that and still say that you are a Christian. If you say that Jesus is not God, you are not a Christian. A Christian must also believe that Jesus was perfectly sinless. And we'll talk about why tonight. 
But you can't believe that Jesus was a sinner and still be considered a Christian. In fact, it's makes no sense to believe that. We also must believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in order to be a Christian. We have to believe that his death on the cross was the payment that all of our sins required, that it was totally 100% sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins, that it's not Jesus dying on the cross and then us adding to that but that our trust in being saved and being forgiven of our sins and being declared righteous is totally based on the work of Jesus. And now we come to one that sometimes we leave out, that we don't often think of as much as the Apostle Paul did, as much as others in the New Testament did, and that is this. A Christian must believe that Jesus rose from the grave. The resurrection is as imperative to Christianity as the engine is to the function of a car. If you remove the engine, the car doesn't work. If you remove the resurrection from Christianity, everything else collapses. Everything else falls apart. It's interesting in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives almost an entire chapter into arguing for the importance of the doctrine of the resurrection, more so than he does about the death of Christ and and everything else. He focuses in so much on the the resurrection of Jesus in such an intense degree that he says here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What Paul is saying What all of us need to wrap our minds around together tonight is that Christianity lives and dies with the truth of the empty tomb, with the truth of the resurrection. This isn't something that we can compromise on. This isn't anything that we can leave out of our gospel presentations. Christianity, the the climax of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, Romans 4.25, the apostle Paul there writes, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. There's the crucifixion. But then he says, and raised for our justification. It's the resurrection of Christ that is the keystone of our justification. That is, that is the most important part of our justification. Because here's why. If Jesus never rose from the dead, that would mean that Jesus had sinned and that sin had power over him to keep him dead. Paul said, for the wages of sin is death, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord only because Christ rose. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, when he walked out of the grave, never to enter again, we're not talking a resuscitation. Lazarus was resuscitated. He was brought back to life only to die again. Jesus resurrected. It had never happened before. He was the first fruits of all that would follow after him. And so when Jesus walked out of the grave never to enter again, it was God the Father saying, Jesus, your sacrifice, your death on the cross was satisfactory. I have accepted the sacrifice and I am validating it as accepted. And so all who put their faith and trust in you now will be forgiven. That's why the apostle Paul says, if if we lose the resurrection, then our faith is futile. It's useless. It's empty. It's fruitless. If we worship a dead savior, we don't have a savior at all. It's only by the fact that he rose from the dead, that he overcame death, that we can have the hope that we too will one day overcome death as well. Some other things that we lose if Jesus never rose, Romans 8.34. Romans 8.34, who is there to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, but more than that, notice this, more than that, Paul says, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Right now, Jesus is interceding for us. What does that mean? Right now, as the enemy, as the accuser of the brethren is before the throne of God saying, hey, did you see PJ sin this week? I have a savior who at this moment is interceding on my behalf, pleading his righteousness, his blood, saying, yes, but my sacrifice paid for that. My death atoned for that. So he's forgiven. 
If Jesus is still dead, he's not interceding for any of us, and we're still in our sins. Similar concept, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. The writer says, since we have a great high priest, the high priest is the one in the Old Testament who would go into the Holy of Holies on behalf of all of Israel to to bring that that sacrifice and to atone for the sins of all of Israel. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is better than all of those. He is our great high priest. He is the, the greatest high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. If Jesus is still dead, we don't have a high priest and we have no access to the the, the throne of God. We are on the outside looking in. Romans 3. 23 through 25. This is the crux of it all for us. Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward, verse 25, as a big word, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We are justified in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word propitiation means satisfaction. It's the, the, the idea that Jesus on the cross in three hours satisfied the entire wrath of God against your sin and against my sin. What would take us an eternity in hell, what we could never satisfy, Because he was fully God and because he himself was sinless, he was able to go to the cross and satisfy all of that in three hours for us. But the thing is, if if Jesus never rose from the grave, then he didn't satisfy God's wrath. Because that was a, a sign to us that he himself was a sinner also. And if he never rose from the grave, then the only alternative is that he himself went to hell and is suffering for an eternity under the wrath of God. The resurrection is undeniably significant to our identity as believers. It's everything to us. Pastor Mike, who if you just come on on Saturday nights or Sunday, or sorry, if you just come on Sunday nights, uh, he's our our senior pastor here. And... uh, Again, sidebar plug, come to church. Come to church on, on Saturday night. This is the, the hairy hot dogs that fall off the roller at 7-Eleven. That's the, the filet mignon that you're getting served is, is Saturday nights or Sunday mornings. So come to that. But Pastor Mike said this. He said, we should be reminded of the reality of hell every time we look to the cross. For the cross is the, I love this word, the absorption of the full impact of God's punishment for those who have reached out for the benefit made possible by Christ's death. The cross is the absorption of the full impact of God's punishment for those who have reached out for the benefit made possible by Christ's death. And the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is God the Father saying, yes, he has absorbed all of it for you. Bless you. Paul went on though in 1 Corinthians 15, 15. He said even more than that, if, if, if Christ never rose from the dead, he says we, the apostles, are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he did raise Christ, whom if he did not raise, if it's true, that, then, that, then the dead are not even raised. Paul's saying, look, If Jesus is not raised, then toss out your Bibles. Get rid of them because we're misrepresenting God. We're lying about him because we've testified openly to you that he did raise Christ. And so you see, Paul is driving a nail, driving a stake in the ground and saying, this is, we can go no further until all of us agree on this issue. For Christianity to have any significance at all, For us to have any hope, the tomb had to be 
empty and Jesus has to be alive. So that's what I want us to look at in the rest of our time here together is how can we know that the tomb was empty and that Jesus actually did rise from the dead? Well, first, let's look at some alternative theories that exist out there. What do some other people say to explain away the, the, the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus? The first one, uh, the hallucination theory, that everybody just saw a mirage together, the same mirage. That when Jesus, it says in the, in the New Testament, appeared over 500 people, that that was just 500 people with a severe acid trip, seeing a guy that, that looked like Jesus, and they were like, okay, yeah, he's, he's risen, let's go start a church. It's a little hard to believe. I don't know a whole lot of group hallucinations that take place. It's like saying that, would you ever walk up to somebody that you dreamt about and, and gone up to them and said, hey, wasn't that dream that we had together last night just amazing? We should keep that going tonight. No, they would be like, you are the creepiest person I've ever met in my entire life. Get away from me, right? It doesn't work that way. This is just an, an avoidance tactic. How about the second one, the swoon theory? We'll talk about this more, but this is that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just passed out. He just took a little nap. We'll come back to that one. Uh, then there's the, the stolen body. Someone, either the disciples or someone else, stole Jesus' body from the tomb. Again, we'll come back to that. There's this one, the imposter theory. This is my favorite, I think. Jesus had a stunt double. That it wasn't Jesus who was crucified. This is the, the teaching of Islam. But it was somebody who looked like Jesus who was crucified. And number one, I don't, I don't know who you talk into that. And number two, you still have to deal with the empty tomb or the stunt devil. It's not a very good reason. Uh, next, the wrong tomb theory. Oh, man, we went to the wrong tomb. We went to one that was a few doors down, and it was guarded by Roman soldiers as well and had the stone closed, and it was empty. But Jesus was really buried in a, in a different one. We'll come back to that too. Those are the, the alternatives. I don't think they're very good. Hopefully you picked up on, on that by my commentary on them. Um, but let's look at some evidence for I want to give you five facts tonight. Five facts for you to tuck away, for you to, to, to bring up when you're having conversations with people about the resurrection that you can whip out and say, look, what do you do with this? What do you do with this? Because the burden of proof is not on us. The burden of proof is on those that want to say Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Because the historical evidence, as we're going to see, the evidence stacks up in favor of the resurrection. So if you want to shoot it down, you got to come up with some cockamamie theory like the hallucination theory or that Jesus had a stunt double in order to, to make that work. And we'll see that those don't hold water. So the first thing that we need to look at is the fact that Jesus died. He did die. We've seen external testimony to that fact already when we looked at the historical Jesus. You remember this guy? Chilling without a shirt on, Tacitus. He said this, remember about Jesus? He said, their name comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed. That's a word that means what? Killed. People who are killed, what? Die. Who had been executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate. So Tacitus is a Roman historian, not a Christian. Referencing the fact that Jesus, what? Died. And then there was this guy with the nose, right? Josephus. Joe. And he said this, and when Pilate, and this is a Jewish historian, okay, not a Christian, not a believer. When Pilate, because of an accusation made by leading men among us, among the Jews, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. So Josephus is saying he was executed on the cross under the, the reign of Pilate. So we see that, but, but also consider who was it that was physically responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus? Rhymes with Schmoman, starts with an R. <laughs> Romans, right? I don't, any bonus points here? Anybody know what SPQR stands for? Semper Populus Quae Romanus. What does that mean? Awesome. It means what it says in Latin. It's Latin. Anyways, <laughs> that's, that's the symbol for Rome, right? It was the Romans who crucified Jesus. These, these weren't a bunch of bumbling idiots, who were like, well, get some wood and some leaves and nails and let's see what we can figure out. These guys were experts at crucifixion. They didn't invent crucifixion, but they certainly perfected crucifixion. 
We believe that that crucifixion was invented by the Persians, but by the time that Jesus was crucified by the Romans, they had taken it and perfected it over at least 200 years at this point. They knew what they were doing. These soldiers who were tasked with crucifying Jesus and the two other criminals that were crucified, one on his left and one on his right, they were professional executors. They were undertakers. This wasn't their first time. They knew what they were doing. And so to to think that they would have have said, oh, well, uh, we just made a mistake. He was actually just passed out. He didn't actually die is, is absurd. But you add to that. What happened to Jesus before he was crucified? He was beaten, flogged. I mean, he would have had his wrists tied to a pole with his back exposed. And a cat of nine tails, which would have had leather strips, and at the end of it would have had ball bearings, metal balls, and it would have had pieces of broken bone, and it would have had other sharp shards embedded in the, the leather straps. And that was whipped onto the back of Christ. And the way they would do it is they would hit the top of the back and tear down. Such that at the end of this beating and flogging, his back would have been ripped open with the muscles exposed and, and tendons born. It's no wonder that he collapses under the weight of the cross on the way to be crucified. The fact that he was able even to, to take any steps at all is amazing. There were people who died just from the, the beating that preceded crucifixion. And then he had nails driven through his wrists and one through his feet. And then it wasn't a gentle process as the cross was lifted up into place. The cross was lifted up and there was a hole dug and the cross was at the edge of the hole. And as the cross was raised up with the the, the guilty party on it, except in this case, the, the, the cross was nudged down and it would slam down into the hole such that even from that, a lot of times the, the joints would be dislocated from the, the force of the impact as the, the cross was slammed into place. And then if that wasn't enough, three hours into the crucifixion or a little bit thereafter, a Roman soldier came to break the legs of those that were on the cross because the Jewish Passover was near and they wanted to take the bodies down because that was in accordance with the Jewish law. And so he went and he broke the legs of the, the thieves that were there to, to speed their death, which I'll mention here in a moment. But by the time he came to Jesus, he noticed that Jesus didn't need his legs broken because he assumed that he was dead. But just to be sure, he took a spear and he, sh- he shoved it through his, his side. And so now you have a gaping spear wound as well. Do you know the way that crucifixion kills you, though? Yeah, it's asphyxiation, it's suffocation. Because the way that the body hangs, it it puts so much stress on the diaphragm that that you can't breathe that way. Your lugs can't battle gravity and the weight of your body to fill up with air. So in order to fill up, they, they would have to push themselves up on the nail that's driven through their feet in order to take a breath, to pull themselves up on the, the, the nails through the wrist in order to take a breath with shoulders that were possibly out of joint. And so before too long, it was too much and they couldn't do it and they would suffocate to death. But that was a long process. But everyone, friends and enemies alike considered that Jesus was actually physically dead. And then you have Joseph of Arimathea who comes following the crucifixion and he goes to to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus to be taken down from the cross. Remember, it was Jewish Passover coming up. They wanted to get him buried before sundown so that they wouldn't be in uh, in infringement, breaking the the law. And so Pilate says, yes, go for it. So they go to the cross and, and they take the body of Christ from the cross. And what we're suggesting here by those that say that he was merely unconscious or passed out is that these men who were taking the the physical body of their Lord down from the cross did not see any signs of life at this point. We're saying that they they missed the pulse. They missed the the lungs still breathing. But then beyond that, they wrapped him in grave clothes and between 65 to 75 pounds of burial spices. And then they take him and they lay him in a tomb. And they take a, a, a rock an enormous rock at that, that would have been in a channel that would have promoted it settling in between the, 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 the curves there and sealing 
the tomb door and they, they put him inside there. And then if that's not enough, there was a guard of Roman soldiers placed outside of the tomb. So again, let's consider the swoon theory that Jesus didn't really die. How likely would it have been for a passed out Jesus to regain consciousness, to strip off heavy spice-soaked grave clothes and beaten and bloodied and with a spear wound in multiple dislocations possibly, to roll this massive stone away from the inside of the tomb and to sneak out past a Roman guard without anyone noticing. How likely is that? And how convinced would his disciples have been to see that, forgive me, but pathetic picture show up and be like, hey guys, I'm alive. That wouldn't have inspired anything. And that's not the picture that we see in the pages of scripture. So to suggest that he didn't die is nothing but sheer absurdity. You have the external evidence. You have the fact that it was the Romans who were crucifying him, who were professional executioners. Jesus died. Jesus died. That's the first fact. The second fact, though, is this. The tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. This Roman guard is placed there. The tomb is sealed at the, the request of the Jews, and, which means that, that Pilate had it sealed with clay or wax and put his insignia on there, the insignia of Rome, so that people would know nobody was supposed to touch it uh, as, as a, a prevention of anybody stealing the body, and the guard was set there. But then the next day when the, the women come to the tomb, they find out what? He is not here. Why? For he is risen, right? He is risen indeed. Yes, so he's not. It's empty. There's nobody there. And here's the thing. Nobody ever produced the body. Nobody ever produced the body. The gospel accounts were written, all four of them, and then you take Acts. So we're going to say five were written well within 70 years of the events that they're recording here. So well within the eyewitness time frame of people that would have still been alive. And they're all claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. The book of Acts, that's the main thing. We are witnesses to the fact that he has risen from the dead. And guess what nobody ever did during that time? No, he's not. We've got the body right here. Gary Habermas says this. He says, Jesus was publicly executed in Jerusalem. His post-mortem, after-death appearances, an empty tomb were first proclaimed publicly there in Jerusalem, where he was executed publicly. It would have been impossible for Christianity to get off the ground in Jerusalem if the body had still been in the tomb. His enemies in the Jewish leadership and Roman government would only have had to exhume the corpse and publicly display it for the hoax to be shattered. Not only are Jewish, Roman, and all other writings absent of such an account, but there is a total silence from Christianity's critics who would have jumped at evidence of this sort. I mean, imagine for a moment the damage that would have been done to the church had a body been presented. It would have been the death blow. Literally, the death blow to the church. It never would have gotten up off the ground. And there were plenty of people who did not want to see the church succeed, who could have, if the body was there, easily gone and produced the body. And you'll say, well, Pastor PJ, what if the disciples did steal the body? Okay, I'm going to grant you that they were able to deceive the Roman guards somehow. They were able to roll the stone away without the guards noticing. They were able to go in there and and take the body, and they were able to to conceal it and all agree that they were going to perpetuate the the lie. But here's the problem, and here's where that theory falls short. All of the the original 12, save, well, not Judas, the the, the 12 post-resurrection, save John died for their faith in the resurrection of Jesus. They were killed because they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Nobody's going to do that if they're firsthand eyewitnesses of the fact that it was a lie. Some people will say, well, look at Islam. People blow themselves all the up, in the na- up all the time in the name of Islam. Yes, but they're not eyewitnesses of what they're dying for. They're under the deception that has been passed down for generations and, and hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years. They're deceived into thinking that they are dying for a truth. No one's going to die for something they know is a lie. The disciples died 
I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm preaching a different point. They, they, they died because they believed that the tomb was empty. And nobody ever produced a body. This is why Paul told Festus when he said these things were not done in a corner. He's saying, you're well aware of what happened. That's public knowledge. In fact, not only did the enemies of, of Christianity not produce a body, they confirmed the empty tomb. Matthew 28, 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a bribe, a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole the body while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Notice the response of the Jewish leaders. The ones that delivered him to be crucified was not, no, his body's right over here. It was, you need to lie and say that his body was what? Stolen by his disciples. Even his enemies confirm it. Let me just mention the wrong tomb theory for a minute. When we read the accounts of, of Jesus being laid in the grave, in, in the tomb, Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 61 says that there were women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary uh, Magdalene, who were standing nearby watching Jesus' body being laid in the tomb. And it's those same women who show up the next day. Remember, one of them is the mother of Jesus. Do you think she would have made a mental note of where the tomb was? Yeah, I, I think so. And she's the one who goes back with Mary Magdalene and, and finds the, the tomb empty and goes back to the disciples and the disciples run to the tomb, the same tomb, and, and they find the tomb empty as well. And again, if it was the wrong tomb, his enemies could have said, no, 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 you missed it. It's two doors down. Here it is and here's the body. And it didn't happen. Again, the wrong tomb theory doesn't hold water. But, but this one, what I was getting going on a, a minute ago, the disciples believed he rose. The transformation that you see in the disciples is remarkable. This is fact number four, by the way. Sorry, third. Fact number three. You're like, wait a minute, I missed one. Nope, you didn't, I did. Fact number three, his disciples believed he rose. How many disciples were there at the cross when Jesus died? If you're thinking less than two, but greater than zero, you're right. One. Who was it? John. Remember Jesus on the cross said, behold, son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Where were the other disciples? Well, some of them were running, fleeing for their lives. Uh, the young man fleeing naked, Mark 14, 51. There's questions about who that is. Some people think it's Mark. Some people think that it's somebody else. But anyways, he, he takes off from the garden because he's frightened. And he takes off so quickly that he leaves his, his tunic behind. And then somebody probably made a statue out of it in Greece. What else? They were uh, denying him, right? You guys remember Peter? Denied Christ how many times? Three times, right? So he wasn't with Jesus at this time. He's, he's denying him. Well, that's, that's not great. Some of them just simply slid into the background to watch at a distance. The, the women disciples were watching the crucifixion from a far off place. They couldn't bear to be there. They, they, need, they wanted to be away. They wanted to be at a safe distance. Some locked themselves in a room out of fear. John 20, 19, when Jesus shows up after his resurrection and he appears in the midst of a locked room where they had gathered out of fear of the Jews, it says in that text. So these are disciples who are terrified that, that they're next, that the Jews are gonna come after them next. And then Luke 24, we find that there's some that are just despondently throwing their hands up and going home. Jesus walks up to the two on the road to Emmaus and he says, where are you going? They say, are you insane? Do you not know? We thought this man was gonna be the, the savior. We thought he was the Messiah. And so they're, they're taking their ball and going home, so to speak. So it's not a pretty picture for the disciples. But something changes drastically in the book of Acts. These guys are all of a sudden leading the charge, spreading the church, planting churches where they go, creating disciples. What changed? 
they encountered the risen Christ. That's what they say changed them. When? Well, he appears in Matthew 28, 9 through 10 to some other women. He appears in Luke 24, like I just mentioned, to the two on the road to Emmaus. That's my favorite resurrection encounter because they look at Jesus, the risen Jesus, and they go, hey, don't you know what happened? Don't you know that this guy Jesus died? Really, tell me about that. Yep, that's that. Sorry, I'm ahead of you. He appeared to Peter in Luke 24, 34. He appears to the disciples minus Thomas in John 20, 19 through 25. Then he appears to the disciples with Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas, right? Who had to feel the, the wounds. And then he says in that great expression, my, my Lord and my God. And then he appears to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21 where Peter is restored and where uh, he goes fishing with them, right? And, and uh, tells Peter to shepherd the flock. And then it says in 1 Corinthians 15, they appeared to more than 500. We believe that that was <coughs> most likely in, in Galilee. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, we learn that he appeared specifically to James, his half-brother. We'll talk more about that in just a second. Then in Acts 1, 4 through 8, he appears to all of the apostles. That's when he says, you will go and be my, my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then as Paul would say himself, as to one born in the wrong time, last of all, he appeared to the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. So he appeared, he showed up. And all of this led to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, which is believed to be an early church creed that, that Paul incorporates here. And that is, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And so this becomes an integral part of the DNA of the early church, the resurrection of Christ. So much so that they listened to Peter on the day of Pentecost. This is like 40 days-ish after he denied Jesus three times. Out of fear of not the, the Romans with spears and not the Jewish Sanhedrin, out of fear of a, a slave girl. And now listen to him. Acts chapter two, verse 22. Men of Israel, Hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see Peter just on fire all of a sudden, pointing the finger at the Jews saying, you guys delivered him to the Romans to be killed, but guess what? God raised him up. This is 40 days plus after the events in question in Jerusalem. You don't think there were people there that watched him die on the cross and nobody stands up to shout Peter down because they knew that it had happened. Same thing, Acts chapter 3, 12 through 21. I, I won't take the time to read it. But again, Peter boldly preaching, saying, God has raised Jesus up. We're witnesses, he says, of this. We've seen it with our own eyes. And so something changed with the disciples. The only alternatives or that these men, again, agreed to some conspiracy of, of just impossible proportions to pull off. And even if they had agreed on a lie, the, the temporal, the, the closeness of the geographic and, and, and timeline, the, the temporal closeness to all these events would have made the lie easily exposed. People would have said, that didn't happen. We're here. We're living in Jerusalem. What are you talking about? And nobody does that. But more than that, again, the, the death of these men. 
Tertullian records that Peter was crucified because he would not deny the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We know that Paul was beheaded under Nero's reign in Rome. Why? Because he would not deny that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. James was killed with the the sword under the order of Herod. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This isn't James, the half-brother of Jesus, but this is a different James, is, is killed under the, with the sword by, under the order of Herod. And then we know under the, the persecution of, of Nero that Nero would clothe Christians in animal skins and he would throw them to the wild dogs to be eaten alive. That he would dip them in tar and light them on fire and strap them or impale them on posts in his garden to light his parties. And these men did not deny, these women did not deny the resurrection because they knew it to be true. His disciples believed it. It's an undeniable fact. Next, the transformation of James, this guy. I don't think that's what he looked like, but some artist did. In Greek, I think that's brother of God there. Anyways, Uh, Mary's son, James, half-brother of Jesus. In the Gospels, we read in Mark chapter 3, 31 through 35, Jesus is in teaching, he's healing, he's he's casting out demons, and his family comes to get him. Why does his family come to get him? Because they're embarrassed by him. He's causing a scene. Hey, Jesus, you're one of those loons. Hey, remember he goes, they they go to Jesus in that, and they say, hey, Jesus, your, your family's out there. Your mother and your brothers, they, they want you to go with them. James is there at that point with them. Then in John chapter 7, verse 5, it plainly states that James did not believe in Jesus. It doesn't get any more plain than that. John 7, 5, it says James did not believe in Jesus. But then in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, like I mentioned, Jesus appears specifically at one point to James, to his half-brother. And it's pointed out that, that he appears specifically to James And then after that, in Acts chapter 15, verses 21 through 21, that's wrong. Acts chapter 15, I think it's 12 through 21, we find that James is in what position? Does anybody know? He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So in John 7, 5, he thinks Jesus is an idiot. He thinks Jesus is insane. He doesn't believe in him. And in John, excuse me, in Acts chapter 15, he's leading the church in Jerusalem, leading the followers of his half-brother who he one time rejected. What changed for James? Who also, remember, Josephus tells us was killed for his faith in Jesus. What changed? He encountered the resurrected Christ. And that totally transformed him. So the transformation of James There's that quote from Josephus Festus, now dead. So the high priest assembled the Sanhedrin, brought before them the brother of Jesus who was called Christ, whose name was James and some others. He delivered them to be stoned. Finally, the transformation of Paul. The transformation of Paul. Who was Paul before he was Paul? Saul. In Acts chapter seven, we read of the death of Stephen. Stephen is known as the first Christian martyr. Stephen gave testimony to the gospel and to the resurrected Christ. And the Jews became so enraged that they picked up stones and they murdered him. And it says in the text that Saul was present, holding the coats of the people that were executing Stephen. And in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, it says that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That Saul was glad that they were killing Stephen. And then in Acts chapter 8, it says that a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And in chapter chapter 8, verse 3, we read this. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But then we've got all of the letters that Paul wrote to all of the churches that he planted that make up so much of our New Testament. What changed for Paul? An encounter with the resurrected Christ. Acts chapter nine. 
Paul has papers, Saul at the time has papers in his hand to go and imprison more Christians. And he has literally kicked off his horse, his donkey, by the resurrected Jesus. And a voice calls out to him and says what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds and says, who are you? And the voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And from that moment on, Saul's totally changed. He goes from being the most vehement persecutor of the church to being the most prestigious church planter that the world has ever known. He's an evangelist whose zeal knows no bounds. He gets to a point where he's in in prison and he's like, dude, let me die because then I get to go be with Jesus. But you know what? I'm going to end up staying on because it's going to be better for you guys. It's just a radical transformation in Paul. The the suffering that he encounters in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Read that sometime. You think you've got it hard. Read what, what Paul went through. And then think about it and go, what changed? There's nothing, nothing logical about the shift in Paul's life, save what he preached is true. If what he preached is true, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is is risen from the dead, then it is all logical and totally sensical and, and everything falls into place. And for us sitting here tonight, we should say, we need to get on board with the risen Jesus. And I guess that's the thing. That's the conclusion that we have to arrive at. You can choose to ignore this stuff. But he is alive. And 2 Corinthians 15.10 says that everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's a great white throne judgment where unbelievers will go and and be cast into uh, into darkness for rejecting Christ, but even believers are going to have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And, and I, I'm sitting here saying, you look at the transformation in, in the disciples, you look at the transformation of James, and, and you look at the transformation of Saul, and they went from fishermen and tax collectors and Pharisees to, to saying, we've got to get the message of the resurrected Jesus out everywhere that we possibly can. And the whole reason is because they encountered the resurrected Christ, and it totally changed everything for them. And so I I want you to to ask yourself tonight, and you'll talk about this in small groups. Have you encountered that resurrected Jesus? It hasn't made a difference in your life. And if not, and you sit there and say, yes, but I believe the tomb is empty, why? I mean, this revolutionized these guys. Do you care that Jesus is alive? I mean, if, if it's got to go beyond doctrine. It's got to go beyond the mental ascent to say, I, I intellectually understand that Jesus is alive, that the tomb is empty. It's got to impact you internally so that you will go out and want to tell other people. You have classmates in your classes. You have peers at work going to hell right now. And you have the message of the empty tomb. What are you doing with it? You don't need to wait. I mean, next week we're covering the problem of evil, okay? So, and then this, this whole series on apologetics is, is, is over. And I, I, we've done this series not to, to say, look, we're, we're smarter about irreducible complexity. We've done this series to say, look, we want to be equipped to go out and, and tell people about Christ that he is risen from the dead and that that matters for every single person on the face of the planet. It's the linchpin of Christianity. Without it, Christianity is meaningless. But with it, Christianity is meaningful for every single person born in the history of mankind. It matters. And it's our job to go out like the disciples did, like Paul did, like James did, 
and be his witnesses and start telling other people, imploring other people. People give me a bad rap because I'm the yelling pastor, whatever. Okay, fine. But Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we read the, the, the word of God sometimes so abusively when we're like, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. There, there's emotion here, guys. There's, there's a pleading. There's a begging. When Paul says, I wish that I was damned to hell so that my kinsmen could be saved. Whoa, that's zeal, that's passion. I'm not even asking you to get there at this point. I'm I'm asking you to to move the needle just a little bit to the point that you're willing to have a conversation with somebody about these things. Because everything else that we do here, we're gonna do better in heaven. Your fellowship with one another is gonna be better there. You're able to, your ability to, to retain God's word is going to be better there. Your ability to sing is going to be better there. Our, our times corporately in, in gathering together like this, it's going to be so much better in heaven. The, the, the only thing that you can't do better there that you can do here is go out and tell people about Christ, about the resurrection. Because at that point, there's not going to be anyone to tell because everybody's going to, that's there is going to know. We've been given a certain amount of time. We've been unleashed by God with his message to be his ambassadors, to go out and tell other people the tomb was empty because he is alive. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this truth and everything that it means for us, all the the, the joy that comes with the knowledge that Christ is risen from the dead, that we no longer have to fear death, that death no longer has hold over us, that he is the first fruits of all those who will follow after him. And if we are in Christ, that includes us. Lord, I pray that you would move us. I pray for opportunities this week for everybody in this room to tell somebody about the resurrection, to, to, to tell somebody about the fact that Jesus is alive and that that matters to them. God, may we be bold ambassadors for Christ. I pray that our small group time now would be pleasing to you and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.